0: Thanks for downloading and welcome to Take Oral the podcast from Dream Queen's Medical Centre Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing advanced clinical practice in emergency departments. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. Any guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospitals NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. So, hello once again. Welcome back to Take Orally. Uh, delighted to be joined today by James Pratt. Hello. Uh, advanced clinical practitioner here in the emergency department, and also who works uh, in Dream with yes. me as an educator. Yep, I do. Uh, we've been trying to do this podcast for a while, so thank you so much, thank James, you. for. Yeah. fitting us in and uh, we're going to talk about uh this is this episode is more of a special a general introduction to the concept of advanced clinical practice i know that you spoke about this recently at em2c
1: yes we did yes we did.
0: and you've had a number of talks throughout the the trust i understand about the role as well
1: over many years i've done many <laughs> many conferences and sessions around yeah. the role of advanced clinical. Practice. okay so um and can we find you on twitter james uh you can find me on twitter and uh I think my Twitter handle is at James Pratt ACP We'll have a look at that and make sure <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, Okay so um, Back when I was at medical school There were doctors There were nurses There were pharmacists There were paramedics There were CSWs We all had our defined roles as we saw them uh, And then I came here to a and mm-hmm. And there were these things called ANPs Yes uh, and uh, when I was on the ward, I saw these things called specialist nurses as well. Can we just take a moment now to sort of discuss the differences between those and, and what an ACP is and why we no longer call them
1: ANPs? Okay, so when you were in medical school, yep, there were ACPs yep. that probably known as ANPs, nurse consultants, even nurse specialists, nurse practitioners. So, when we talk about advanced clinical practice, advanced clinical practice, where we work in the emergency department, uh, we're talking about a group of staff. Uh, in our case, from the background of nursing here at ED Queen's, uh, we have thirty-three of them. Uh, background, like I say, is nursing, and they work clinically within the medical rotor, or I should say within the blended medical workforce rotor, because we make up a large part of that rotor, uh, Where we would work at di- different varying levels uh, Whether that's at the level of an F2 or some of us working up to registrar level uh, depending on which area they are and within which competence they are within our departments where we also have nurse practitioners uh, ENPs who are different from what we are as ACPs the ENPs can see uh, undifferentiated patients but undifferentiated patients within a certain group so they can see patients for example with injuries from shoulder and below mm. and knee and below mm. so they can see only a limited amount of patients they are mm. highly specialist in that area mm-hmm. uh, they are experts within that area uh, while an ACP can see anyone who comes in through the door. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we will take a more of a generic uh, approach to our patients, and mm-hmm. that's underpinned by a level of education and a level of competency which then allows us to practice at a certain level. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about defining advanced practice and especially in recent documents about my health education uh, England, it's mainly around actually a level of practice is what defines the individual as an advanced practitioner. So as I say, in our department, our ACPS can see anything which comes through the door, uh, mm. and their level of competence is down to their experience mm. uh, and their level of, of their level of training as well, whether that's undergraduate or postgraduate. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I think that summarises what we do as ACPS and our difference between ACPS versus nurse practitioners in our department. Mm.
0: There
1: was another question you asked me. Uh, so the what's the
0: why are we now calling them ACPs and not ANPs yeah because yeah. so when I joined you were all ANPs yeah. and then and you were you, all you
1: be- very protective yeah. about being called ANPs as well yeah and I think this is partly tribal really in that I am a nurse I do not want to lose being a nurse but I am a nurse and I'm still a nurse now I'm employed as an advanced clinical practitioner with a nursing (laughs) registration an ACP uh, within our trust is someone who is registered to a professional body whether that's someone with the HCPC body or whether that's the NMC so you will find ACPs across the country who are pharmacists occupational therapists physiologists physiotherapists, Mm. dieticians, lots and lots of backgrounds. Mm. Uh, It's not the background, which makes you the ACP, it's the level of training and the level of yeah. practice which makes you the ACP. Yeah. So to call ourselves advanced nurse practitioners silos us away from other areas and also in some way holds us back because then we're then put under the nursing bracket yeah. rather than actually being put down what is this new role which is an advanced, and it's not, when I say a new role, it's not really that new, but a role which is becoming more recognized and more common which we would call advanced clinical practice which sure. makes up this new modern blended medical
0: workforce. So. Is it, so it- It's a relatively newer term, though, compared to those more, you know, doctor in in, inverted commas, nurse in inverted commas, and all of that. Yeah. Okay. Um, So, can we just sort of talk a bit about your background then? So, you're one of our more senior ACPS. Um, Just tell us a bit about, you know, what you, what your background is, what you did at university, etc. So, uh,
1: I came to Nottingham University in 1998. Uh, and I did a diploma in nursing at the time Uh, finished that, went to work in eyes and ENT for only six months and then the the rest of my career has all been in emergency medicine so around about 18 years in emergency medicine during that time from an academic point of view I undertook a Bachelor of Science in Health and Social Welfare, undertook various other clinical courses along that time, uh, took a specialist interest in education, set up a role as a emergency department resuscitation officer, where I worked closely with the resuscitation team, uh, did various jobs as a band six, became a charge nurse, uh, worked over in uh, other emergency departments within the region, and then came back here, and I, I can't even, it must be 2007, Maybe 2008. I uh, undertook my MSc in advanced clinical practice at Nottingham University, uh, and that was supported by here in the emergency department. And then I've been doing that role ever since. So I think I'm six years now graduated from that, working Mm. in this ACP role. Mm. uh, And now I I lead our ACP team here and Mm. been doing lots of work on developing the ACP role. I have a. role within the trust as well in developing advanced practice within the trust as well as various other bits around advanced practice teaching the university and i also have a part-time role in there as an interprofessional educator here within our within our dream department where i've also been supported to do my diploma in medical education a little bit of everything and i think this is the beauty of advanced practice Mm. is that the trouble with Careers in nursing, classically, is that there was no career which kept you at the patient's bedside, which get you, got you into senior banding, other than you really had to make that career pathway yourself. The beauty about advanced practice is that you can come from any background. Mm. So you can see from my background, I've done a little bit of management, a little bit of leadership. Uh, I've done a little bit, well, I've done lots of education, a little bit of research at times flipped from here and there, done various roles and now have become an ACP which encompasses all those roles Mm. rather than the old sort of linear pathways which were within careers, within nursing where you would say become a E grade, a band six junior charge, a band seven charge nurse, then maybe go into a matron role, then a deputy divisional role, then divisional role and etc etc and there's all these very sort of lined out pathways and that was the way you progress and the beauty of advanced practice and I think I'm an example of you can come from of different backgrounds and then you can still go into this role where you can still encompass those but the best thing is is that I remain at the patient's bedside and my job is firmly grounded in the clinical aspects of my work. Mm, absolutely so um, can we just take a moment then to talk about the course uh,
0: of, of advanced clinical practice uh, so what requirements do you have um, I know you 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 get a lot of in, um, emails of interest so what requirements do you need uh, what backgrounds do you need and, and what does the course actually then entail?
1: So I can talk about the course at Nottingham University, and now yeah. this is one of the, there is multiple challenges with uh, advanced clinical practice. One of the biggest challenges is standardization of training, uh, the way that the training is delivered, and then the way that that training is assessed. And also, what is the entry requirements to undertake that training? So here at Nottingham University Hospitals, we this is the minimal criteria. We would ask at a minimum that you've got three years post-registration experience within the clinical area of which you want to work or a relevant area. Ideally, we would like five years. We would want you to have a degree at a two-two because you're gonna be taking master's level academic training or something of equivalent, whether you can prove that through role. Uh, And like I said, this is just for Nottingham University Hospitals. Uh, We'd expect you in the emergency department to have undertaken audit research, some operational development, some involvement in education, uh, some involvement in management. So we would like people to come in more rounded the people we've taken who have been more junior uh, have been fine clinically. It's just the other sides of the role where they've needed more development at the end of it. The people who've come in with their skills already are the ones that have really pushed the service. So it's important to get the right people to do the course. But the course is only one part of it, though. So the mm. course that we have here at Nottingham University, and I'm going to be slightly biased because <laughs> uh, I teach on it and we're heavily involved in it from Dream. Uh, but our course is is not a new course, it's been around for a long time. Uh, It was set up by a consultant emergency medicine, Frank Coffey, which makes it quite unique in that we had a consultant doctor uh, working within our school of nursing setting this course up. So he brought a lot to the table about how the role would look and the course very much underpins that. So our course is split into Round about two and a, two and a half to three years it takes to complete. Year one is a is two modules made up of clinical examinations. Uh, so we will teach you all the general clinical exams. So you would be taught basic history taking, which we would then build on, start to bring in clinical reasoning, decision making, discussions around red flags, clinical bias, uh, and then we would also bring in. Uh, Related to the different body systems, so you would learn GI histories, GI exam, cardin- the cardinal symptoms of those of those um uh, body systems, uh, cardiorespiratory exam, neuro msk exams etc etc which would cover them all what makes us quite unique is that we are very much based in simulation uh, and also our anatomy and physiology is all delivered by anatomists and physiologists we utilize the anatomy labs where possible and as much sort of virtual learning we can around that as well uh, the afternoons of those sessions are all based in the simulation suite i when I say simulation we're not talking about using mannequins we're talking about using simulated patients we have a cohort of simulated patients who have, we've been with us in dream for a long time and are incredibly valuable uh, they they provide a realism uh, and make the learning outcomes achievable in what i would say was a high fidelity environment so we can really get sort of the we can really bring in different learning outcomes like certain decision making techniques bringing in bias and things to certain scenarios so we would every afternoon after we've had our morning anatomy physiology you would then rotate around addressing a single clinical skill around various stations the stations are then supervised when I did it by doctors and now by ACPs and doctors mm. uh, who are graduates from the course as well mm. uh, and the assessment system is MCQs and also osci based assessments very similar to the medical school assessments. Uh, and the reason why we've done that is because one of the challenges about advanced practice uh, is showing that you're credible to people on the shop floor. Yeah. Uh, which is very difficult. And I understand that because I often will have concerns about other ACPs coming to our department maybe right. to work or whatever because uh, they come from different training backgrounds. But if you start to bring more of a medical modeller that initial phase, mm-hmm. uh, maybe we can start to move away a little bit away from that now. It just... It, it just shows a bit more credibility to the medical team as well. Yeah. And see us working, see how we deliver mm. the teaching. So that would be year one. And year two, they then move into what we would say our work based learning module. Now, mm. our work based learning module is quite different from other places. So for us in the ED, we would come up with our own competencies, but we'd also have core competencies. So down in ED, we'd have about 350 competencies which need to be completed. Our ACPs at NUH would be supernumerary while undertaking the work-based learning module for around about 14 to 18 months. Uh, where they would have set supervision time, yeah. uh, they would collect mini cases, DOPs, similar sort of things as you would, for, as your normal sort of work assessments where you would undergo competency sign-off. During that time they would do the non-medical prescribing as well. Following completion of their work-based um, learning. And what's an example of a competency? So the competencies are split between symptoms, yeah, uh, diagnoses, uh, treatments and investigations so okay. for example you would address say the symptom of shortness of breath that would be a core competency for anyone undertaking the advanced sure. practice uh, work based learning and anyone at Nuh. age and say pneumonia would probably also sit as a diagnosis on most people's competencies. But if you were being an ACP, say, in respiratory, then actually you'd probably break that pneumonia down into a little bit more detail. Mm -hmm. A bit like the ACP in respiratory would have uh, limb injury, maybe. I would have wrist injury, hand injury, finger injury, elbow injury, you know, so it breaks it down a bit more depending on how the competencies can be then made specific to your area. Following sign-off of all those competencies, which is a lot of work and Mm -hmm. involves a lot of investment, as I'm sure we'll talk about later, Uh, we then have a dissertation which is more of a project which evaluates a service or something or challenges current guidelines that we have in place. Then, you can become an ACP. Oh no, I have forgotten they do a viva after their work based learning, which is a two hour assessment, sat in front of three or four people off some simulation of it. Which you start talking through a case and, and investigation, yeah. Investigation, see where and it sort of can lead itself really. Uh, by that point your work based learning's done. So actually we we know at that point whether these people will pass their vibers or not. Yeah. You know, because they've been so heavily assessed on their competencies. So I mean that's our training pathway and that's what makes us slightly different is that our university MSc is incredibly clinical. Yeah. Really clinical. A lot of other MSCs in advanced practice they tend to concentrate on other parts, mm. okay. Uh, and there's positives and negatives. And I always think when you talk about advanced practice and the training pathway, right, there's two sides to it. There's the part which makes you academically ready, yeah. And there's the part that makes you clinically ready. Our masters tries to combine them both, and there is positives and negatives about doing that.
0: Okay. So it certainly sounds like a very robust. Uh, course sounds very uh, challenging potentially I mean that's a that's a, a very busy three years yes yeah. uh, and the, the student people need to be prepared for that for that yeah. commitment as well uh, especially if you're committing time that you would be working to do that as well
1: yes a huge amount of time yeah so we the supernumerary year uh, they we allow them to do what they need to do uh, to so we don't we don't put them on rotors yeah. I think that's really important. We protect them from the rotor. we ensure the supervision time, we have consultant SBA time job yeah. plan for our ACPs. It's really important to get those things in place before you employ ACPs and get those written into your business cases. Uh, so we have as much consultant time uh, as we possibly can get out of the SBAs for our ACPs. And this is why it's good to train in cohorts because actually, It takes the same amount of consultant time often to sign off one than what it does to sign off six. Yeah. So it's important to try and do it as co Okay. Uh, And then the the year one is a lot of their own time, a huge amount of their own time, but it's enjoyable learning. It's enjoyable learning because you are learning about what you want to do. You're learning about the clinical side of the job. And in nursing, there's been a real, especially within my training, I I did the Nursing 2000 project, which is in there. Very old school, Jamie. You won't, you will not remember the Nursing Two Thousand project, <laughs> but it was very much about social care, social yeah. policy. And yeah. It was a big move away from anatomy, pathophysiology, clinical assessment. And I know there's a movement now with the more recent guidelines, uh, but I certainly yearned that sort of knowledge. I did yearn that sort of knowledge. Mm. Time. So, t- to me, I just enjoyed every minute of my course.
0: Mm. And did you find it that much different to, to your undergraduate degree?
1: Oh, hugely different. Yeah. Hugely different. I think the hardest thing for anyone who undergoes advanced practice is that you go from being an expert in your field yep. to being the lowest part of your field. Yeah. So I came from being a very senior band seven, thinking I knew. Yeah. A lot, and I probably I didn't know a lot as an ED nurse, but then suddenly you start to challenge the way you think. Yeah. And this is where advanced practice really sort of, it cha- challenges the way you think and the way that you make decisions, and actually it's very different. Things which I've never had to manage, I've never really had to manage uncertainty. Yeah, A little bit of stuff around probability and the way I made decisions, but ultimately yeah. I was safe, I'm accountable for my actions, but the consultant was accountable for the patients within the department. Yeah. Now I'm taking on a higher accountable role, and it's very difficult mm. to make that transition from being the expert in what you're doing to suddenly actually really being the dec- quite, quite vulnerable actually being the decision maker and it's quite hard because you suddenly you're being taught by different people you're being taught by medics uh, who they, they teach differently than within nursing mm. so there's a lot of feedback given within medicine and it's how you manage that feedback and what you do with it Yeah, and it, it's quite a transition to go through but it's really important and this is what Frank always says he's always said advanced practice he says it's not a role Yeah, it's not a role it's not a role he says it's a way of thinking Yeah, and it's right I really think it's a way of thinking I felt like when I went through my advanced practice training I think this is echoed from the other 33 ACPs down here is that you literally deconstruct everything that you thought and knew and then you build it all back up with other ways of thinking Mm. and then your way of thinking when you see the patient with chest pain just changes suddenly you're thinking well and this is and suddenly i started to really sympathize with our medics when i used to push them for <laughs> the our performance target and actually i suddenly started think actually this is it's really difficult to do yeah and it takes you go on a journey as such to get to that point
0: okay um, so um just take us back then i mean at em2c you you presented brilliantly and, and um there was some great feedback on Twitch, and i recommend people do check out your twitter page there was a a brilliant intro you had involving the star wars crawl uh setting the scene um for the for the purposes of people who perhaps haven't seen that can you set the scene for us uh, about what what happened in setting up the acp service here at, at the qmc emergency
1: department yeah so our acp service is now 10 years old in the emergency department uh, and I don't know if we're the biggest ACP services in emergency medicine across the country. I think we must be one of the biggest. Uh, like I say, we're currently at 33, uh, soon to take on a number more. I, I would say we'll be over 50 within the next sort of 12 to 24 months. Mm. Uh, and it's been a long journey to get to there. And I can give you an idea of how we set that up. So. We at the Nottingham Emergency Department, we're a very busy department. Uh, we see a lot of patients. I think we see in excess of about 170,000 patients a year now. What we did have when we first set up the ACP service was a lot of senior nurses. So we had a lot of senior nurses, uh, and we were losing a lot of senior nurses. At the same time we had the challenge of what was happening within medicine at the time and it's continued to be a challenge in that we had uh, less junior doctors less junior doctors come on to emergency training Uh, we had a poor learning environment shifts were difficult for them and then we also had the problem of an increased amount of patients coming into our department. But also these patients had uh, increased comorbidities, there was an el- a growing elderly population. Everything was becoming more challenging. And luckily enough, Frank, uh, Frank Coffey that is sort of, it's been 10, 12 years ago, when he set up the ACP on the... MSC thought this needs to be addressed, uh, so what we did initially is we employed two senior nurses, one of them was a nurse practitioner, the other one was a senior who was a band six nurse actually, and we put them on the MSC They completed the MSC they really struggled to get through it because of the lack of support it was a new role. they then got on to thing and basically uh, what they ended up doing was just filling in a locum line on a medical rotor which was pretty much them working eighty to ninety percent unsocially and really really it was challenging for them. Uh, and it just wasn't right No. So, but it was successful they did provide a service and they provided a service that was of equal to people doing the same role as them mm. uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't what we always wanted advanced practice to be so then we took a step to think actually let's let's send a number of ACPs and I'd love to say there was a business case that was written but when I speak to the, our head of service at the time I always say to him where's the business case for the first lot of ACPs we sent He said, well, it's probably in Costa Coffee, Well, I sat with the business manager at the time. (laughs) He said, oh, we should send some ACPs. Let's send two. And he said, oh, no, let's send eight. And then I settled for six in the end. So, And this was really important. Okay, But there is no magic business case. There is no magic planning at this point. And this is a lesson which I can talk about later on. So we sent six ACPs uh, at that point to do their MSC. Now those six ACPs were very se- when I say six ACPs, six trainee ACPs, they were all from a nursing background they're all from within this department uh, they were all very senior in their own different ways. Yeah. So we had myself as a charge nurse with an education hat on as well we had people who had worked in research we had people who were already nurse practitioners people who worked in change projects, senior clinical nurses uh, very high flying nurses and we so we sent these six nurses off and actually this group of nurses we sent to become ACPs really drove the service and the majority of them still drive the service now. And this took a massive hit to the department. So we sent these guys off. As in you were taking them away from we the shop floor. We were senior nurses off the shop floor. So there was a short-term yeah. deficit. Yeah, but what we did try and do and what we've continued to try and do up until this year is we've always seconded from within our department. So we've grown mm-hmm. our own ACPs, which has been good because it's meant that the department hasn't taken such a hit, business cases are easier to do, and it's allowed us to build a service so we can really prove what we do as a service. So we are, they, these guys went off, they did their first year, and then we actually thought we need to make sure we're sending in the next group. So we put a business case in for the next group, uh, and we I think we employed four with the next group, I can't remember for sure, I think we sent another four at that year. Uh, and then the group who the first group that had gone then went onto the shop floor and that was my group and we had at that time four hours of consultant supervision per month for all six of us to get 350 competencies signed off so it was nearly impossible <laughs> to trying to do, do the maths there yeah. yeah and we learnt the hard way about how to get things done so we were probably a little bit moany at the time saying oh we need this we're never going to get this done without this rather than actually coming up with solutions and then we came up with some clever ways to get things done we showed an impact on the shop floor because we weren't on the rotors but when we were there we could see patients uh, even if it was only one or two a shift but then we were allowed to go and learn about them because people learned in different ways and the consultants started to see the value in us and the consultants started to buy in to the role of what an ACP could do for them and it was very much down you get what you put in, and if you nurture your ACPs, you get you, you get a good ACP at the end. So we continue to build our service from that. So we continue to build our service. And we ended up then with those six graduating. We continued to employ at that time. So in 2010 uh, When we first started that service, we had six trainees two qualified in 2014 we were up to 16 qualified and four trainees one of which of those was a pediatric training uh, in 2018 we had 25 qualified ACPs 8 trainees and we're about to well we're interviewing in the next couple of weeks to send a number more mm. so in total around about 33 ACPs at the moment all from varying backgrounds mm. uh, which now cover this rotor but that first 6 that we sent was so important to send those senior nurses okay and to insure, ensure support was there and to make sure we sent them on the right course mm. so anyone who's thinking about setting up ACP. Services, my first bit of advice is send the right people, send the right people, don't just put bums on seats. Think about how that person will be able to manage being an ACP, how they'll manage uncertainty, probability, those difficult conversations they're going to have to have with their colleagues. Okay? Mm -hmm. Those difficult referrals, how they interact with people, how they're going to be seen by the, the workforce they were working in before. Select the right course because you need the right course for them to go on. If you send them on the right course, You'll get, you'll get a person who comes out with at least the clinical grounding ready for you to then nurture them from a competency point of view within the area of which you work. And now when I think about what we have built within our service with those 33, before I actually go through what they actually provide, We now have a bit of a setup where we have around about 25 consultants in our department, our 33 ACPs, our 14 CSER doctors, then our 47 junior doctors. So what that allows with our CSER doctors and our ACPs is a permanent workforce who know the department. Yeah. The consultants know me. So I come into work, they know my competence level. I'm not going to go in four months. They know that I know all the pathways through the hospital. Mm. They know that I know the guidelines. They know i Several on... of your colleagues have written the guidelines. Majority of the guidelines, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's written by us, but yeah. Uh, so, from a clinical point of view, what we currently cover within our department is we cover about 90 hours of clinical times, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Sure. Uh, and that's across the whole of the um, uh, the working day. We tend to put more ACPs on in the morning, especially did over winter, due to the amount of handovers which are happening. Junior doctors do not come to the emergency department to learn about how to look after patients with handovers. They come here to look at the to look after patients who are presenting with emergency medical problems and that's why they're trying to they're here to learn. And so actually we can take that away from them and actually it leaves a consultant free then to do what they need to do. So then the
0: consultant, so this was an agreement you you were happy as a team I we, knew will, we were happy well but we knew, you it was agreed right, <laughs> <laughs> you agreed as a service as yeah. a team within the team to say we will take over we will take the handovers yeah. the consultant is therefore happy that there is a, a senior decision-maker there who they trust who is taking that handover yes. uh, it frees up the junior doctors who are f- flitting through to, yeah. to focus on the the more acute stuff
1: yeah.
0: uh, and and uh, it led to a greater sense of control during what was a very challenging winter and
1: also having that that number of clinical hours of that number of staff with the junior doctors so we we tend to every time the junior doctors rotate we do a questionnaire with them just to ask them Mm. about how they feel about the acp service it's really interesting about how they find that we're a source of knowledge for them someone for them to go to some of our more senior acps work in those very senior roles up on the reg rotor and things especially within our majors area so we're there as a support for our junior doctors as well it's just another person for them to support another person for them to talk to about that difficult patient. That difficult decision, mm. uh, and it also gives them someone who sits between the different workforces. So, you've got the nursing workforce, the medical workforce, someone who just sits a little bit in between with a hat on in both ways, mm. okay, which helps with communication. So, out of those 90 hours, it works out to round about 257 shifts. Uh, I hate comparing ACPs. Two doctors, two nurse practitioners. It's not healthy, it's mm. not good for the service. We should look at how the service works better mm. when we have a blended workforce, mm. because currently we have an increase of what, 5.2% in patients, mm. okay, every year in emergency medicine. There is more than enough patients to go around, we're not trying to take away people's training opportunities. Uh, I feel well supported by my medical colleagues and when often we're asked to look at what makes the ACP service valuable, we're often asked to compare against doctors and I don't think that's a healthy thing to do. We have pulled some data around that, we know that the ACP will see the same amount of patients as the registrar does as the junior doctor does at that point in training.
0: Yeah, if there is an equivalent. Is that yeah, yeah.
1: right? I don't know. Is it right that we will see 1.3 patients an hour? I don't know if that's necessarily right because actually if we see 0. 0.8 patients an hour and we spend the rest of the time doing education, teaching and developing, that's a good thing. Yeah. So it's not always true from the data, but we know that from a clinical point of view, we see patients alongside our medical team in the same way. Okay. Mm. Uh, I would like to look personally about how the whole service works when ACPs are there, when ACPs aren't there, and we look yeah. at it as a service. Just like if you think when the pharmacists aren't there, the pharmacists are there,
0: Yeah. Whatever. But what you also do is you're, you're a team who allow, uh, say, the, for the registrar training day. Yeah. Or sees a doctor's training day. Those doctors not able to be on the road because they're on a t- compulsory training day. But that's okay, we've got this great yeah. service who can so fill in those rotors and
1: act at a similar level. We will flex our rotor to the needs of the department. So I'll give you examples. Uh. Every Wednesday, we put more ACPs on during the day because it's a consultant meeting and the junior doctor training. Every time there's a regional registrar day, we will up our junior doctor, our ACP numbers. Uh, every time there's an ENP study day, we will cover the ENP shifts. It allows flexibility in the workforce, and these are the bits which are hard to capture in business cases. Uh, it's easy to capture the saving local spend. It's easier to capture against targets and things. What's hard to capture is things around... Uh, the softer things like what's staff satisfaction like when the ACPs are there do the do junior doctors get better training opportunities when ACPs are there are you more likely to be able to go to your teaching education, are the consultants more likely to get a way to be able to do clinical assessments and now the other side of that is though, as ACPs, we ask to say back from the department. So mm. when we do our study days, when we do our CPD, we expect to be supported in the same way. Mm. Because it's very easy to be taken advantage of when you're a permanent service. Mm. And not everything can fall on the ACP service. So I do I do a lot of sometimes I feel like protecting our service so we don't take on too much. And you mentioned
0: their locum spend. Have you got a have you got a figure? So we've got some figures, really.
1: So uh, and this, I will, look, just before we set, go into a little bit around savings and things of business cases, you've always got to be a bit cautious around this because if I think about a lot of our business cases, the early ones were based around locum save and locum spend. We will take out a line of locum spend, we will save this, this, this. It takes three years to train an ACP yeah. to a level where they can work at, I think, around about an F2 level. It mm. takes five years to get them at that level where you really, really want them. They don't go onto a rotor for three years. In three years, we've seen an increase of patients. If we're saying five point two percent per year, an extra fifteen percent of patients in that time. So you probably actually need another line on that rotor by that point. So actually, then you don't end up saving locum spend. You end up costing the department more because you put another line on. And then if that ACP goes, you then locum out. Another <laughs> line. So you have to be a bit cautious about it. Yeah. And it's only now we've got such a big service that we're really starting to save locum spend. So, And you said we're a decade down the line. Yeah, we're a decade down the line. So okay. this takes a long time to do. Uh, so currently we cover 257 shifts a month, which is round about seeing 2,250 patients in the department. Uh, that doesn't include our reviews and initial assessment. Uh, the ACP service costs about a million pounds. Uh, if we were to be covered from locum spend, it would cost one one million seven hundred and eighty-two thousand pounds. So we save round about seven hundred and eighty-two. If, if the ACP service decided to walk out tomorrow, which they're not going to do, <laughs> uh, we would. Uh, We've got you we on recorded for that. pounds. So seven hundred yeah. and eighty-two thousand pounds saving yet. Now, this is something. When I say they're not going to walk out tomorrow, our retention rates are very, very good. Yeah. Okay. And the retention rates at our trust are good, well in within the emergency medicine, because we invest in our ACP service. We treat them well, we let we don't work them on social hours all the time, we give them good study days, we let them have we have a postgraduate education plan. They're well supported, they feel like they're part of the team. That's really, really important. So, what, I mean, what does that actually mean? I mean, £782,000 sounds great, but actually that can mean 30 staff nurses. That's 30 staff nurses that can work on the shop floor, which can then free up other staff nurses to develop policies and guidelines yeah. to work on pathways, to work on audits, to improve the department. Once again, the softer things that you can't actually collect easily. Yeah. From a business
0: case. Okay. So, and can you just uh, just briefly just so what is an average week like then for an ACP? Because you mentioned you have CPT CPD time. Um,
1: what does a week look like for for an ACP? So we're contracted to a thirty-seven point five hour week. Because we are not doctors,
0: <laughs> uh,
1: and that generally breaks. Uh, currently, six hours of that is given to CPD. With that CPD, uh, I prefer to call it non-clinical time. Four hours of it is about personal development. Two hours is about departmental development. Okay, and that personal development doesn't have to be clinical. Okay, so we, I have done a lot in education. So my gaps may be in research and audit. So I need to undertake some bits around that. Yeah, uh, other than that was then my clinical shift so normally sort of three to four clinical shifts a week Uh, then 9.5 hour shifts uh, working anywhere across the department Uh, there's certain areas I think we add more value than others so I think in our initial assessment area or they'd call it rat in most the ratting area in most hospitals uh, we add a lot of value because we work well with the nursing team because we know them by name we're not rotating away we know the guidelines apart from the hospital so we do, do shifts in there, so our general week will look like that. Now, a lot of our ACPs are part time now. When I say they're part time, it's not that they don't work 37.5 hours. What we've done is we've put them in other roles in our department. So, we've had an ACP who was head of service, mm. so we had an ACP who was head of service, which was great. Uh, we've had ACPs who work with as interprofessional educators. I write curriculums for this for a dream. We've got once who work as clinical teaching fellows, we've got guys who are now going into research, who are gonna be doing PhDs, and all of that is about addressing what that individual needs. And this is how I think you retain your ACPs, is you treat them as individuals, and you don't treat them as everyone's the same because everyone has different needs. And we talk about the pillars of advanced practice. So there's four pillars of advanced practice. There's the clinical, research and audit, leadership management, and the education pillar. But I don't think anyone's ever actually looked at what those pillars actually look like. Mm. So if I got to the very top of the educational pillar as an ACP, what does that look like? If you broke all of those pillars down, what does that look like? And it's a piece of work we're trying to do now. But what's the bare minimum every ACP needs to get to on those pillars? Yeah. So we know from a clinical side of things what the bare minimum is. And we're lucky that we have the accreditation pathway with our so we've worked that into our post we use that as a postgraduate guidance. So we use our postgraduate plan. So we know where we want to be from that. From a research side of things, uh, I'll do my G C P training. I doubt I'll get much further down the research route, but I've got colleagues who will go off and do their PhDs and then start looking at doing more primary research within our department. Same with education with head heads of service, but it's important to treat them as all as individuals and that makes up their working week. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you're a
0: if you're a doctor you've got that route and you've got that final destination of consultancy yep. and in many ways it can only be when you're at that stage of consultancy is when you maybe have that freedom to develop um, your yes. skills and you're kind of at your destination by that point point. Yeah. and you've been on this treadmill to get to there yeah. it sounds different it sounds like well, as you're I'm, on that journey you guys are you guys are yeah, being developed at that point
1: this for this yeah. we're doing it here at Boston University Hospital how we're doing specifically in ED in that I think you need to learn from the mistakes of what other training pathways have done. Uh, and, uh, and this is obviously personal and my opinion on it, but I think that if you treat people as individuals, you address what their needs are uh, and what their passions are, you'll get a lot out of them. And they shouldn't, you shouldn't punish people. Let's well not punish people. You shouldn't allow people to drop out of current roles or training yeah. to pursue their interests. Mm. Because actually, it makes them better in the role which they're doing. Yeah. So, by making, so by having our three ACPs who are part-time in our education team mm. has changed the way education is in this department. It's allowed us to do new projects like the Nurse Foundation Project, which there'll be a podcast about again soon. Uh, it's allowed us to work closely with our medical colleagues, look at the different curriculums of our junior doctors. By allowing ACPs to be more involved in guidelines and interface groups has allowed huge amounts of change in our department, which has come with a positive outcome, which is a, a, a meant that the consultants are free to do different things. Our junior doctors are more supported to explore this. I mean, you take audit, so like 90% of the audits that were completed in our department in the last 12 months had ACPs involved. That's a huge amount of quality that we're trying to improve in our department. So I think it's important. You have to treat people as individuals, and you have to do it right, and you have to rotate things and allow other people to have opportunities, mm. and everyone should get the opportunities because actually, yes, I'm exploring my pillar of education <laughs> at the uh, but at some point I might actually think no, maybe I just want to do something a bit different yeah. and actually I do a lot of management and leadership and maybe I want to take a more of an operational route and start to go down that route but the thing about advanced practice is it allows you to do that
0: Yeah,
1: and it, the training pathway and I mean the tra- when I talk about the training pathway the training pathway isn't just the MSc and the Viva and then you're an ACP it's the five year plan that we've worked out after that now this is new ground for advanced practice yeah. there's lots and lots of work going on uh, and lots of really good stuff that's been done by Health Education England about what is an ACP what makes an ACP what I want to see is what do you do with the ACP who's 10 years graduated Yeah, and we need to invest in those people Mm. to make sure they continue to develop Mm. and we don't just lose them
0: I like uh, Frank Coffey's uh, quote that uh, don't make your ACPs doctors make your doctors ACPs
1: yeah so only a doctor can say that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so we, me and Frank often talk about the lessons that we've learned in setting up an ACP cert. Yeah. Uh, and one of them is that, is that actually, you, uh, what's the quote Frank always uses? So he used a quote by Einstein in that a problem can never be solved on the same level of thinking that identified it. Mm. So the problem which we're facing in the NHS, as we said, is that we have got increasing amounts of patients coming in here. For multiple reasons. We've got services which are stretched. Mm. We don't have the medical workforce to see these patients. We don't even have the nursing workforce really to cover these patients. We don't have, we're not ready for what's coming our way. And the technological changes are gonna be really influential in this. So we have to think of new ways of doing this. We have to think of new ways of training. We have to think of a new, modern, blended medical workforce. And we have to leave our previous ideas behind, Mm. okay? And I think this is really difficult to do. I am not trying to be a doctor, okay? I am an ACP, all right? I'm a role in itself, okay? Some of the roles I do, you could say, are doctoring, okay? Some of the roles I do are nursing. But you know what? A lot of the roles a doctor does is nursing. And I don't think I've ever felt more like a nurse until I became an ACP, Mm. which is really interesting, I find, when I think about it like that. So we have to think about this modern, modern medical workforce and whether that, that's going to include PAs, it's going to include uh, medical administrators, doctors, nurses are going to have to be trained differently, we're going to have to start to think about how their role is going to be different in the future, nurse specialists, ENPs, physios, all the AHPs, we have to think differently, we have to train them differently. Hmm. Because actually, there's something wrong with our training. If we're losing so many doctors, we have to, and nurses, it's the same with nurses, we have to think about what's going wrong. Yeah. So that's one of the lessons, Frank always <laughs> says. Frank <laughs> says, which I do agree, I just don't like to say, that because we say that in the conferences, often the doctors tend to shuffle a bit at me. It's yeah. explaining what we mean. But there's a few other lessons yeah. I think are very important okay we we'll could probably explore those lessons in in future
0: podcasts yes that'd be a good idea um i suppose just finally uh you, you, you touched on attitudes yeah um you know have you noticed a difference and you know if when you pick up the phone and, and say i'm one of the practitioners when you speak to a patient and introduce yourself as a practitioner
1: have you know yes have slowly. you noticed a difference it's been a slow journey yeah. this and I understand the apprehension of the junior because mm. it's the same though when, the, when I work with a new junior lot yeah, yeah I am apprehensive about what they're telling me because I do not know that they may have gone through a training yeah but I don't know their competency level all the time The a sure. standard which they probably met but that standard can be variable sometimes Mm. so when I first started it was really difficult you'd get you'd ring someone up and say I'd make a referral when when would the person see the doctor can I speak to a doctor about this have you spoken to a consultant about this you know you used to get that a lot Uh, and it's it's about how you manage those situations. If you manage those situations badly, all it is is detrimental to the ACP service, and ultimately yeah. the person who suffers is the patient. Yeah, yeah. So I'm quite mature about it, when people say those sort of things. I say you're welcome to speak to my consultant about this. Uh, often if I'm challenged I'll challenge them back by asking them the question back to them why would you want to speak to my consultant mm. uh, the real sort of problem that we had especially around those is radiology radiology has been really difficult so it's been a very slow journey journey of radiology mm. so you know I work with you all the time I see a patient I think they've got a aortic dissection yeah. I have probably seen more aortic dissections than you, Jamie, in this department. Yep, I'm um, happy to say yeah, that, yeah. I would say I am competent <coughs> in assessing a patient with a possible aortic dissection, uh, as are the ACP team, yet I cannot request a CTA. I have to ask an F2 or another doctor who has radiology requesting rights to do that, which currently uh, uh, doesn't bother me. We'll take, we just take time. Ten, year, ten years ago, we had to fight to do chest x-rays. Okay. This year, we can now do a CTPA, and we can do a cervical neck scan. Uh, I know ACPs who can't do any radiology, so there's been a real barrier. Slowly, mm. you come through. What I have seen shifts in the way that we interact with medics, and the feedback we generally get is that we get really good feedback from them. Get yeah. good feedback from them. Mm. But sometimes that feedback frustrates me when they say it in front of junior doctors and they say things which then break down the barriers between us and the junior doctors Mm. so oh brilliant there's five ACPs on today we'll be alright today and you think well actually there is a blended workforce on today and we will all be fine today and I think sometimes they're the the, the new sort of attitudes we're seeing yeah Uh, but the junior doctors I worked with ten years ago are now consultants yeah so I gave them advice 10 years ago when they were junior doctors with ED and now they take my referrals so it's different (laughs) now it's fine because the relationship has been built that way and advanced practice within our emergency department Mm. is so ingrained in the workforce Mm. from a patient point of view it's tough Uh, they often will call you doctor yeah if you go in there and say hello I'm a nurse practitioner it's probably easier than saying I'm an advanced clinical practitioner but I always say I'm an ACP often someone asks me about the role people have been refused they say I don't want to see you I want to see a doctor it's fine if you want to see a doctor you can see a doctor okay I will find a doctor to see you Mm. All alright it it will take time you don't go to the urgent care centre or to a minor injuries unit now expecting to see a doctor
0: no you don't and in 10
1: years time you won't go to the emergency department expecting to see a doctor no and and it is, it is
0: interesting isn't it, the, the outreach teams are increasingly, I mean I think most outreach teams who now come to A&E are a nurse specialist yes. of some variety. Yeah. Uh, and you, you don't see it um, apart from uh, orthopaedic registrars uh, the, uh, the most specialties this is a nurse specialist who comes
1: yeah and I think that's, that's the difference. certain, speci- sp- certain specialities are very challenging around advanced practice yeah uh, and then they turn around so I have every month I have a meeting with a speciality and they yeah. say I want an ACP service. Okay. And I say, right, how do you want an ACP service? And we could talk about this probably in a different podcast for a little more detail about what you have to think about if you want to set up an ACP service. Uh, but often they want what we have, but what we have has taken a decade to build. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. So you cannot just put people in wrong. You can't, it's really hard to employ an ACP off the street. Okay, a qualified competent ACP it's hard to find uh, so but there's definitely specialities now moving towards that model I mean now at, at NUH we have 86 ACPs now mm. across the trust uh, by the end of y- the year that will be 120 Yeah. so mm. it's a big workforce yeah. It's a big workforce when
0: you think about it. I, I just remember when I was an F2 and one of, one of it wasn't yourself, but it was a member of the ACP team uh, wh- wh- who's been doing the job, been a nurse for, for over a decade and then was ACP. Uh, I, I don't want to see a nurse. I want to see a doctor. And I'm thinking I, I've... I've been an A and E for a month, and you'd rather see me just because
1: I have a title. Yeah, and that, that's all they are—is titles. No, it's the difficulties. It's just a title. Yeah. And what we're talking about is a level of practice. Mm. My level of practice is the same as your level of practice. However, we got there. Okay. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment, different James. Pathways, different routes, but yeah. we got there. Absolutely, we got there. I think, and I think we are, we are seen as we are we are fundamental to the working of this department every day now Yeah. so the department needs the ACP service mm. so there has to be there's been a shift in attitude in that way as well mm think We've got there to the end of the podcast now, haven't yes. we? Yes,
0: <laughs> uh, thank you so much, James. Ten years. <laughs> not far off. <laughs> thank you so much, James. Ten. I think we'll we can do some future podcasts looking at further details about yes, the I'd ACP like service. I think yeah. there's uh, we I know we have an, a lot of listeners to the podcast who are ACPs, uh, yeah. and I think it's something that we need to explore further. And the concepts, yeah, and I think involved. if
1: anyone has any ideas what they'd like to hear about how we've done different parts of the ACP service, how we've developed different mm. AC career pathway, AC ACP career pathways, business cases, education, whatever. be
0: quite happy to do some bits around there yeah and you're at james pratt with two t's yes acp two t's <laughs> at, J- at james pratt Someone acp argue that. <laughs> at james pratt acp which is yeah. always awkward when we're shouting pratt at you across the room yeah, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. so uh and um, we're at, uh, at take orally uh, i'm at, at mcdreamy if you have any ideas anything else you want to know about acps and AED, please get in touch and, and we'll do a few more in the, in the future thank you so much james thank you jamie thank you That was the Take Orally special on uh, advanced clinical practice in the emergency department. You can find uh, the uh, blog entry for this podcast at takeorally.com. And uh, you can remember to also find Take Orally on both Facebook and Twitter. Uh, NUH Dream can also be found on both Facebook and Twitter.